Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Bertrand Tavernier's new documentary, My Journey Through French Cinema. Told through portraits of key creative figures, the documentary follows Mr. Tavernier's half-century-long love affair with film that began when he was just a boy. Augmented by his voluminous knowledge on the subject, he details both the giants of his native cinema, Renoir, Godard, Melville, as well as some frequently overlooked contributors, Edmond T. Reville and Jean Sacha, in a film full of both personal and historical observations and memories. My Journey Through French Cinema was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films for DGA members and guests by presenting screenings of documentaries, as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to My Journey Through French Cinema, Mr. Tavernier's expansive filmography includes the critically acclaimed features Round Midnight, Coup de Torchon, and Capitaine Conan, as well as the award-winning features The Clockmaker of St. Paul, Life and Nothing But, Fresh Bait, It All Starts Today, and A Sunday in the Country. After the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Tavernier spoke with director Chuck Workman about filming My Journey Through French Cinema. During their conversation, Mr. Tavernier discusses his desire to salute the directors he loved, his early career, and how, in his opinion, being a film buff stops when he actually makes a film. Uh, thank you. That was, um, I'm sure, a wonderful experience for... I know we just got a rave from Billy Friedkin, so uh, that's something. Uh, uh, Bertrand just told me that there are eight more hours. Yeah. I just... Uh, it, most of the thing I could not include in the film because I was... <laughs> there were so many directors I could not... I could not push in the film. I mean, Clouseau... Uh, Sacha Guitry, Marcel Pagnol, uh, Jean Grémillon, um, some forgotten directors, the uh, people who worked during the occupation, René Clément, Claude Autant-Lara. So uh, I, I, I had, uh, I was able to do eight, uh, eight more hours, which is not enough. I mean, a lot, uh, I would have liked to have 10 or 12 because I have many people to still missing. <laughs> That's, and how will they be shown? They'll be shown on, on it will television? Be, it will be shown in October on television. In television, eight times. Um, uh, they decided that it will not be called a series. That it, that will be called eight films. So, so um, it will be shown, I think, from the fifteenth of October. Here or in France? No, no. I mean, yeah, yeah, first in France. Yeah. Because okay. they finance the film. <laughs> of course. So they have the right to show it first. <laughs> and they the, gave me a little bit of money. To and do it. Uh, I, I'm sure I'm wrong, but I hope I'm not. That 
This is the first time Pate and Gaumont did this anything This is the together. first time that Pate and Gaumont... The two Gaumont, biggest companies in, in, in The two France. biggest companies in France, each owned by... Uh, the, the, the two people who own them are two brothers, but that's the first time they are doing a co-production. So uh, my film, it was like breaking the Berlin Wall. I mean, <laughs> that, uh, uh, that was something... Uh, uh, well, were they happy? Or were they, were they, were, of course, I, they were very happy. They got happy. along together. They were very happy. Uh, the people of Pate discovered that the atmosphere was much more convivial at Gaumont. I mean, that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, they were very happy. And, and uh, Bertrand, how, how do you put this together? I mean, do you compile everything? Do you make lists of, of everybody that you want to put in? I mean, what no, is no, I didn't make a list. I tried to uh, to write uh, a draft, a screenplay. It took me a long time. I, I was working because BBC had asked to do to do a film of one hour about the French cinema, and I could never find out. Uh, it's only when I start writing, it took me a long time, when I said, let's begin in the garden, let's be, be, uh, begin by something totally subjective, by my story, my point. I'm not a teacher, I'm not an historian, I'm not a film critic, uh, I'm a director, and I know I can talk about the film from the point of view of a director who happened to have met during his life a lot of people, to, to heard many stories, to have a lot of experience. A lot of them are unknown uh, because people told me things. Uh, I, I had wonderful moments. Uh, and it's a way of um, making... Uh, so so it, 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 has to, it had to be very personal, very good. And when I, I thought about, okay, the, the first film I saw, when I was six, uh, that gave me the beginning. After that, <laughs> it was a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> I wrote, I don't know how many drafts, uh, and uh, we were discovering that those films were, uh, did not exist, so I had to start another. But, but slowly and slowly, it changed the... The, the form of the film, the, the dramaturgy of the film imposed something that, uh, that I mean, uh, in a way, uh, Renoir led to Gabin, Gabin led to Maurice Jobert. Sure, you can see that. M Maurice Jobert. Suddenly there was, there was a construction. And, and, and when I was trying to get away from the, it was not working. So, the film, the film dictate at the end its, its own shape. The, the thing which was very important for me is to give a lot of space to the composers because they are always forgotten. Nobody talks about them. Even Martin Scorsese in his film, uh, he never mentions the composer. Never. Or very rarely. Um, I wanted, especially that I think the relationship between a lot of film composers and f some French directors was completely unique and totally, totally different than what, uh, what hap was happening there. A lot of French directors knew, knew many things about music. They were writing songs. They had, they had great relationship with the composers, which they were choosing, working sometimes 
before the film was shot, give you a short example, uh, Julien Duvivier, in, in the film he made in the 30s, in Golgotha, the first credit of the film, after the title, a film by Julien Duvivier, music by Jacques Hibert. First, first card of the title, the composer. And, and they had, so I wanted to pay a tribute to people I loved. I love Joubert. And uh, I love Joubert, I love Cosma, I love those composers, so I wanted to, uh, to salute them. And, and also you have, uh, well, the wonderful section on Gabin. Yeah, yeah. You know, we were talking before about whether Americans really appreciate what a, uh, I don't mean that he was talented or that he was great or anything, but how what what a huge star he was. He was like the Gable of France, or the or he was more more than even that, more yeah. more than that. He was quite unique even inside the French system because Gabin, not only as I said, was the first proletarian hero. Uh, he, he brought, uh, he gave an heroic uh, light to the working class, but not only that. He was very influential on the making of the film. He bought the right of the book. Uh, La Bandera was bought by Gabin and Duvivier. And, and, and together, uh, they did a, a kind of company to make the film they wanted. Uh, he, he did the same thing with La Grande Illusion. Uh, he, he found out a book which he liked, what he wanted, and he went to see a producer, uh, uh, and, and he did Gueule d'Amour, uh, a very good film by Grémillon. The book, which was a, a very interesting book, was found out by Gabin. So he was instrumental. He was helping the directors. He was fighting with the directors. Even, be, even before making those, or maybe at the same time, making great masterpieces with Duvivier, Grémillon and Renoir, Kurt Bernard, who became in this country Curtis Bernard, uh, made a film in Germany in 1933, I think, called The Tunnel. Gabin was a star of the film. Curtis, Kurt Bernard was Jew, Jew. And during the shooting of the film, the Gestapo came se several times. They wanted, we want to question Mr. Bernard. Each time, Gabin called the French ambassador or the French consul, brought him on the set and prevented Bernard to be arrested. Bernard, in his book of memoirs, said, Gabin saved my life. Jean Gabin, he did, he did not do it once. He did three or four times that he, he, he helped the, uh, uh, Curtis Bernard. So he did that very often. I mean, without Gabin, La Grande Illusion do not exist. That's amazing. And Gabin helped uh, financing uh, Le Quai des Brumes or le, uh, just by his presence. He, 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 and was the audience, was the French audience, were they? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he, fans, he, was he in the magazines? Was yeah, he his romances he, he, he was, written about? He, his romance were there. He was okay. a ladies' man. Okay. Uh, and he had, at the end of the 30, he has a very hot affair with Michel Morgan. Oh, okay. Very, very hot. And no, I mean, they were 
together after Porto Shadow. They were, uh, no, he, people were talking about that. He was talking about, uh, and it's among the people I've, I've met, it's somebody who astonished me by his language. He was talking an incredible French, very popular, full of slang, very colorful. And the screenwriter Michel Audiard, I think half of his dialogue is coming directly from Jean Gabin. Absolutely. Just had to listen to Gabin to, to, you, you were getting things which he had judgment. We were very, very sharp, very fast. I mean, and was he smart enough to work with you? Uh, 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 I, I was rather shy when I met him, and I asked him, I said, uh, uh, I'm, I would like to write a screenplay to give you a story, but I'm sure you will refuse it, because it's a story where you would die at the end. He said, Tavernier, you are mad. Have you seen the number of the film where I die? Well, yes. uh, he started to yell at me. That, uh, it was a story of... Um, uh, um, an anarchist who had been a great thief in the 20s, a great, great thief. In fact, he gave the idea of Arsène Lupin. He was only stealing the rich people. Uh, uh, and my idea was to have him at the end of his life when he's, um, he was trying to earn his living on an open air market. And the police was always coming to him every time there was a robbery to him when he was not doing anything. And then he does, before he dies, he does a last action for the uh, Spanish anarchists. And so that was my, my story based on a real character called Marius Jacob. Uh, and uh, I, I start writing that, thinking about Gabin. And he died, but he died uh, two months after. Oh, That's too big. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, there's so much to ask that, that uh, we would be another three hours, but we won't. Yeah. Uh, but um, in terms of you, you, you worked for, what, 10 years in the, in, in the film industry in France, but you didn't necessarily direct it during that time, or you did some shorts? Or, uh, no, I learned. You learn. I learn. I felt I did short. I think they were so childish that I decided that before I, I do a feature, I had to grow up and to learn a little bit about life, because what I was, I did two short, which were very bad imitation of American films, and uh, so I thought that uh, it was better to wait. That uh, my wife at the time <laughs> said that this, those films are very. Very childish, very immature. <laughs> so yeah, and of course, everyone here made shorts that were very sophisticated. You know, and, uh, <laughs> but um, I, I work as a press agent, and I had the luck of um, meeting uh, many great uh, directors, uh, French, Italian, American. I met all, practically all the great American directors. I mean. Uh, Hawks, Ford, Raoul Walsh, uh, all of them, uh, Stanley Donen, I mean, uh, you can name them all, and, and we worked uh, uh, with all of them. But well, you know, we just had dinner, and, and um, the depth of, of Bertrand's knowledge is amazing on American films. I mean, you should, he wrote a book about American films also. But two, two books. Two, sorry. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, 
but I mean, we we see so much about French films, but 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 the uh, that was astounding. That that I mean, he would come up with not only the name of the director, but the name of the movie, the name of the the year. Uh, uh, so it's uh, there's tremendous knowledge there. Do you think that um, this this how much how the, I'm, I'm sure it does. How does this knowledge of American films influence your own filmmaking? Um, when I shoot a film, I'm not anymore a film buff. Uh, um, Philippe Noiret, when he did my first film, The Clockmaker, told me later on, he said, before we start working, I was a little bit worried that I, I would have deal with a film buff, somebody who would make allusion to, all, to other films. And he said, I was reassured after the first day of shooting. We never spoke of another movie. We talk only about the characters. Only about the dialogue, and never I said in all the films I made with Bertrand, we never mention other movies. I mean, when I make a film, I make a film. I mean, my, my life is to work with the characters. Sometimes, sometimes when I prepare it, I will use a film to give to a collaborator kind of idea. I showed to the operator and DP of Life and of Sin, but I showed them she wore a yellow ribbon. I said, look how, how Ford is economical with the close-up. Look that John Wayne is always in the middle of a group. He's, he's very rarely alone on the screen. We should do that with Noiret. Noiret is some, the character is belonging to the collectivity. He should be always rooted in a group. In a, never the, the man who is uh, alone. So sometimes I'm using that. The rest that the film. But from the American cinema, I learn, how do you say, the sense of time and place, what I said for Big Air. I learn, I learn the dramaturgy of the space. I think the Western was a very good school for me to know where are the characters, where they are, related to each other. What is the relationship between the character and 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 the space and the landscape? That was so, uh, something I love in the film of Ford or uh, Delmer Davis of Anthony Mann. That, that I learned. And I learned one of the good, great thing, how the best American films were really American. How were they giving me, they were giving me the sense of a country the sense of a period, the sense of a time. I was understanding the, the Roosevelt, the, time, the year of Roosevelt through Grapes of Wrath, through uh, films like that. I was, I, I'm, the same way I start to, I love many things in America because of the film, because of the filmmakers. The same way that in France. I, I, I fell in love with France because of the French film, not because of the politicians. And and <laughs> um, the, there's a difference though between the French film and the American film. The American and and some people one is French, the other American. Well, well besides that, <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, a reliance more on character, I think in French films, and uh, yeah. you get into that a little bit in this film. 
Yeah, uh, uh, but you can see it. I mean, you can see that the, the but between the European film and the American exactly, film, yeah. not only the French film. Yes. Uh, yes, but it's not true. There are some American directors who rely totally on characters. I mean that. Uh, I would say the difference between, but I mean, general ideas are bad because they are vague. But yeah. if you can, if you want to draw a line, you said generally. The 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 American film is um, it it's imposing things, and and the European film the doubt it's more a cinema which question which leaves uh, I mean you it goes from Bergman to uh, to Antonioni to the Italian director to uh, the Brit some British director Michael Powell it's it's a, there is one cinema of affirmation and a cinema of doubt that would be uh, the difference the rest it's true that a lot of French directors I mean Renoir starting by Renoir the characters or Pagnol or that the character came first it's a character who created the screenplay and uh, and the the plot was secondary and and that I rely with that for me i always been uh, uh, i always wanted to fight against what I call the tyranny of the plot to to uh, to have the, the impression something I lack with the film of Baker that it's a it's a character of the film who are writing the screenplay. It's not the screenwriter, it's the characters. Also, things happen off screen often in, in European films a lot. Uh, more uh, than uh, I, I give the example of Melville, because Melville, when you were talking with him, was obsessed by being a, uh, an American director. And yet, at that time, none of his films were bought by an American distributor. The Doulos, it took many years for the Doulos, for Bob Le Flambeur, for the Deuxième Souffle to play in this country. Because he, he was not understanding that what he was doing was the opposite yeah. of, the, of the American. Just by his use of music, where an American director, look on the ray, when Lino Ventura is running, I mean, any American director at that time, or American studio, would have put a lot of music on that scene because it's, and you have only the footsteps of Ventura running. That's the whole thing. Uh, 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 and, and he was doing things. He was obsessed by William Wyler, and he was, uh, who, who was a director vilified at the time and wrongly by, by the French press, by New Wave. And it was a bit absurd, but um, but in fact Melville <laughs> was was sometimes doing things that uh, Wilder would not have done. But, but that was that was giving the the what was making the film of Melville very very personal. But I was with him. I saw what he was borrowing. They could somebody one day will do can do an essay on Melville to locate. The numbers of shots, of wallpaper, of uh, uh, taken from odds against tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, uh, every most of, most of the thing. I mean, what you see through the window is something from odds against tomorrow. That, that that's a. Uh, I love the idea that he uses studio 
constantly different parts of the, st of the uh, studio. Uh, that's something I learned within how to be very economical. <laughs> Sometimes to use, uh, to reuse a set. I mean, that's the, the corridor of the studio is becoming a hospital in uh, two men in Manhattan, an American hospital, but it's nothing. I mean, it's not even a set. But Melville had a way, uh, he, 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 he could sh very make out of a small room, he was making a set which was interesting, just with the light, that, without any money. He was used to shot to shoot without money. And do you think that the American, the fact that there is so much money in American films, has that changed? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know about that. I cannot uh, comment. I, I can only say about Melville what I learn with him. You talked a lot about something called that you call common decency. Yeah. That you talked in another interview that I'd seen about. But, I mean, this is one of the most important notions in politics. It was. Uh, uh, created by George Orwell, the greatest political writer, the man who was always ahead of everybody, and he told that if we want to have a democratic government, the first quality will be what he called the common decency. And I think it's a notion which so much timely, it's so important to remind that, the com and its definition of common decency was superb. Um, I, and I thought that Baker was the director of the common decency, the sense of the collectivity, the sense of the, of the, the importance of the past without making the past too beautiful, the sense of belonging to, uh, to, in, in a group, the sense that you, you, you can give without being given back. Uh, and I you mean, feel that that's part of, of filmmaking? <coughs> uh, I, I, I think it's part of a, a moral and political approach in filmmaking. I see several directors. Uh, I, I wanted, I, I know two or three French uh, philosophers, and I asked them, one of them who is a, uh, wrote a wonderful book about Orwell, uh, and who is a film boss, I said, I would love you to write a book about common decency in films. And we started to make a list of films. There are several films of John Ford. The, some, a film by um, William Wellman, which is uh, an example. It's a story of G.I. Joe. This is an example of that, of the sense of the collectivity, the, sense that the fact that you have never one one hero working for himself, but always for the benefit of the, the people. Um, so it, it's very, very, uh, very. No, it's, a, it's something we don't think about much. But, uh, but, but, I mean, uh, you are not at all. Uh, no, no politician thinks about it. Well, and he not. said, and, and, and Orwell, which everybody should come back to the political writing of Orwell, because Orwell said, this is a quality that you will find more easily. Uh, uh, in the working class than among the intellectual and among the, the, the people, the, the rich people. And he said, I saw that quality in Barcelona when I was with the, pe the anarchist people. It's where I saw a good example of common decency, people fighting for 
the the, the for for the, the the good of everybody. I think that's in your a lot of your films too. I mean, you see. It I hope. I, I I mean I mean Orwell is my god. George well, Orwell is uh, is uh, is somebody with. Um, uh, I, uh, I I started to love very very early. And uh, and and I, and I felt that uh, no, but somebody told me that um, in the electric mist, or it all starts today, and life are nothing but. I mean, Simon Les, another writer, the guy, the first guy who who attacked Maoism first, the first one who said that Maoism is a crime and it, it will be one of the worst crime of the century. Um, uh, he, he told me that life and nothing but was a good example. So <laughs> I think so the, too. Yeah. So that the film of common decency. Okay. Um, okay. Thank you. Uh, we're going to have to stop, but thank you, Bertrand. Okay. And, and uh, we'll be back with the next eight hours uh, as soon as possible. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. You can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.